Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a new vulnerability in many websites you need to know about, Oracle's outside-in technology turned inside-out, and the real value of a hacked company. Plus, your great questions, our answers, a really great roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 276 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on July 21st, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Oh, our live stream? That's powered by the rather interesting and, I would say, incredible scale engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello there, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks hello, hello, Alan. Hey, how did you think, what'd you think? I had a new Scale Engine pitch. It was the more sophisticated. That's okay. The new, the, the, the It was the just enough to throw me off engine. and make me take notice of it. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Change it up a little bit. Every now and then you gotta give it a new take because it deserves attention all the time. There's always cool mm-hmm. things happening over there. So, uh, <clears throat> Alan. reminds me, we got a Talk later about setting up uh, the multi-bitrate transcoding. Oh, ring. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's going to be great, especially for I, – I feel it. When I'm on the road traveling, like, I, that, I need every bit I can get. So that'll be yep. really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thanks. We should mention on the <clears> – right on the top, we do do, we do, this, we do, do this show live uh, over at jblive.tv where there is a scale engine embedded video player, and you can watch the whole show. In fact, just before we started the show, we had a uh, – I think a really – a really informative discussion about FreeBSD 11, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I learned a whole bunch of new things. So it's always great if you can join us live. And if you're a patron at patreon.com slash today, you also at $3 or more get access to the complete live streams. But we have a big show to get into today, Alan. Yes. And uh, I had the uh, fun uh, task of putting together the story on Oracle, which was a good chuckle. But that's not where we're starting today. Nope. Uh, apparently, this could be a vulnerability for many websites. Yes. What's going on? So there's a new uh, named vulnerability called HTTP Poxy. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> they, they, they combined Pox with HTTP Proxy yep. and made HTTP Poxy. Okay, that's a good uh, one. So in order to explain this one, we got to start with some background information. So starting at the beginning, background item number one, CGI, or the Common mm-hmm. Gateway Interface, okay. is a specification, uh, RFC 3875, that defines the standard way that web servers run backend applications that dynamically generate websites, right? That's, you know, Perl, PHP, Python, Ruby, Go, C. You can write a website in shell script if you want to, right? And uh, to provide access to information about the original request that's coming into the web server from the user to the application that's going to build the website to see, you know, what... um, you know, if they have a cookie that maybe lets them log in or if they, you know, what they're searching for or whatever it is, uh, it, the web server sets a number of environment variables that represent the HTTP headers that were included in the request from the user. Okay. To avoid conflicting with any existing environment variables so that the use, uh, a, a malicious user can't just send a header called like home that overrides the home directory or something, yeah. mm-hmm. um, the web server prefixes all these variables with HTTP underscore. And the variables are uh, converted to all uppercase, right? So this allows your application to say, uh, you know, when your browser sends the header accept encoding, 
which uh, has a comma separated list of the different compression formats your browser supports so that the app knows that, hey, well, I can compress this web page's HTML down with gzip and make it smaller before I send it to your browser and your browser will still understand it. Uh, so that sets the environment variable HTTP accept encoding uh, with the list and then your application can decide what to do. Uh, so that's CGI. Okay. So we, so we know it. Uh, background item number two. Okay. <laughs> Most programs have some support for accessing the internet via a proxy. Mm-hmm. Right? That's pretty normal. Most well, in Unix, this is usually configured using an environment variable, which happens to be named HTTP underscore proxy. Oh, okay. Right? Can you see where this is going? Yes. <laughs> so the HTTP proxy... Uh, attack or whatever, is a set of vulnerabilities that affects uh, application code running in CGI or CGI-like environments, including fast CGI, WSGI, etc., uh, and comes down to two, uh, a simple namespace conflict. RFC 3875, which is CGI, says that uh, the if someone sends the proxy header, the environment variable will be called HTTP underscore proxy. And the fact that HTTP underscore proxy is a popular environment variable used to configure outgoing proxies for internet connections. So does this name collision then not exist for HTTPS connections? Uh, even for HTTPS, the environment variable is still HTTP underscore, uh-huh. except for there's one actually called HTTPS equal on. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the only way you can tell it's HTTPS. Okay. <laughs> and so it would still happen there. Okay. So this leads to a remote, ex- uh, remotely exploitable vulnerability. HTTP proxy is a vulnerability for server-side web applications. So if, if, if you're not running your own website, then you don't have to worry about it. So it's not going to affect your browser per se. But uh, So what can happen if my web application is vulnerable? So if a vulnerable HTTP client uh, makes... Uh, outgoing HTTP connections while running as a server-side CGI application, an attacker might be able to exploit it. So basically, if I connect to your website and I send this header, then all the programs that you're running on the back end of your website that generate the page are going to make their outgoing connections through the proxy I just specified instead of not. Mm-hmm. So like, if your website, say, goes and gets an RSS feed to show the latest episodes of TechSnap or whatever... I can make it do that through a proxy and make the what it gets returned to your website instead of a list of episodes of TechSnap is a bunch of links to ads or whatever mm-hmm. uh, and change your website. Uh, but also, if, say, your uh, backend application makes a connection to a database server, say, over your internal network or something, hmm. uh, I could force that to go out to my server and then I could return whatever data I want or, more importantly, might be able to steal your username and password for your database server. Huh. Huh, yeah, that seems like that'd be a particularly good case uh, or a, a point of attack because if you're, a, if you're trying to get after these scripts that are on the local system anyways, they're probably in a setup where there's going to be a database connection. There could be multiple database connections. And uh, you're like, well, my, the database is on the same machine or the database is on the LAN, and so I don't need to bother with SSL encrypting it, right? Uh, and then proxy bounce back. Oh, mm-hmm. look at that. Exactly. I have access to things I'm not supposed to. Jeez. Uh, yeah. You could also just use it to tie up server resources by forcing the vulnerable software to use a malicious proxy, or huh. sometimes if you just give it an invalid proxy, yeah. it'll just take a long time to tie up, time out. Yeah, right? that's true. And yeah. so if you just pound it yeah. with lots of these requests, <laughs> it, you'll just tie up all the workers uh, that's brutal. Go down. That's brutal. <laughs> yeah. That's also evil. Uh, but, but yeah, you could use it to uh, snoop on data going back and forth between the uh, websites that, or any other resource that it's connecting to. So that, you know, if the um, web application say connects to the Twitter API, although that's usually going to be over HTTPS, so maybe it'll be protected. But you know, 
a bunch of other calls that the back end of your website makes could uh, be intercepted this way. You can basically make the back end application fall for a man in the middle by making it, tricking it into using you as a proxy. So they say, uh, HTTP proxy is extremely easy to exploit in basic form, and we expect security researchers to be able to scan for it quickly. Uh, luckily, if you read on and find uh, you, that you are affected, there's a bunch of easy mitigation steps, which we'll talk about in a minute. <clears throat> so luckily, it's very easy to fix on the web server side. You don't have to go rewrite all your applications or anything like that. Okay. Uh, so I can send a header that will cause your application to make all of its connections uh, like things, connections to backend APIs or databases or whatever via proxy I control, and that's really bad. Hmm. Uh, so then we have an interesting timeline uh, they have from this vulnerability. So back in March of 2001, this issue was discovered in Perl, which is the Perl module for making connections to other websites. It was actually reported by Randall Schwartz, uh, who I think does... Uh, Foss Weekly, right? Foss Weekly uh, podcast, yeah. Yeah, and he's a Perl developer. Yeah. And so he, he found this vulnerability in March of 2001. And it was <laughs> Good <fixed>. job, Randall. <laughs> and it was fixed in Perl, uh, libwww then. Hmm. Uh, the next month, in April of 2001, the issue was discovered in curl, the command line uh, web client. Yes. Uh, and was fixed there, too. Okay. Although possibly it wasn't actually fixed for Windows because of the way they did the fix. Uh, skip ahead uh, 11 years to July of uh, 2012, when implementing the HTTP proxy setting for net HTTP in Ruby, uh, they noticed the problem as a potential issue and worked around it. They worked around so, it. Yeah, so Ruby, turns out, didn't uh, actually have this vulnerability in the net HTTP library, maybe in another place. It's hard to say, but uh, one Ruby developer managed to not trip over it. Then in November of 2013, the issue was mentioned on the Nginx mailing list. Uh, the user pointed out the issue and says, unless I'm missing something, this seems very possible. Mm. And turns out, yes, Jonathan Matthews, you were correct back in 2013, and people should have listened to you. One internet cookie for you, sir. Yes. Uh, then in February of 2015, the issue was also mentioned on the Apache uh, developer's mailing list. But doesn't seem like much was done about it. Then in July of this year, 2016, uh, Scott Geary, an engineer at Vend, uh, found an instance of the bug in the wild. The Vend security team found the vulnerability was still exploitable in PHP and present in, in, present in many modern languages and libraries. Um, we started, and so they went through the process of actually disclosing that and uh, getting the CVE numbers and all that. So it turns out the issue was dealt with in Perl and Curl uh, 15 years ago. But uh, it wasn't really publicized enough or something, and people didn't realize that every other language was also susceptible to the same thing. Right? Huh. This is a vulnerability in any of the applications. It's not a programming mistake. It's just something people didn't consider. You know, Alan, there's a lot of times in this show where we, uh, we sort of, these stories sort of factually seem to de demonstrate that the often repeated advantage of open sources, you know, millions of eyes on the code, I mean, in this case, even once we find it, the, the, the knowledge doesn't really spread amongst the individual yeah. different projects. And yeah. it doesn't, and it can sit around for years and years and years like this. And it, it, it almost, 
it almost seems to me that until there was this commercial industry of bottom feeders that go around finding these things and, and making their name off of them, if it wasn't well, for all this interest... Just research isn't bottom feeding, necessarily. No, but a lot of these guys are trying to get attention, trying to mm -hmm. build a name for their company, and so that's why they're motivated to find these things. But the positive side seems to be we're actually finding these things and discussing these now. There's all these people researching this stuff, well, and it's in actually... Well, in this case, it, it looks like they found it by accident. Right, I know, I know. But my, my point yeah. is is that this stuff has sat around for a yeah. decade or more, mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, nothing so happened. They have CVE numbers for PHP, Go, Apache, Apache Tomcat, HHVM, <laughs> and Python. Interestingly, unless that's a typo, the CVE numbers for Python and HHVM uh, are 1,109,000. I see that. It, I, like, I knew they were going to five digits, and they had done a big... Uh, Notice that we're going to start using five digits. Hope, make sure your regular expression isn't going to break. Uh, but now they're just jumping straight to seven digits. Seems a little yeah. weird. <laughs> well, now I know they've, they've done like pre-allocated ranges sometimes. Uh, but, you know, with these different languages all being in order, I doubt that's what it is. So it just, it seems a little weird. I don't, I'd like to know the reasoning behind issuing that CVE number up in the one millions. <laughs> uh, or maybe it's just who does the... Um, actually assigning the numbers that is different or something. But. Yeah, it looks super serious, though. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I know, like, um, Nginx is marked as vulnerable in the FreeBSD package system because of this, uh, and I think there's a new version that fixes it or something. Uh, luckily, the workaround for it is really easy. Okay. Uh, so if you look at the uh, immediate mitigation section of that website, uh, in Nginx, if you just add this fast CGI param option here, it sets the proxy, uh, HTTP underscore proxy, header environment variable to blank mm. and therefore no matter what the user sends it's always going to be set to blank and it's not going to break anything okay unless that's a quick fix unless your application actually depends on that value being set uh in the freebsd project we have a bunch of applications that run in jails and the jails only have an ipv6 address so if they need to make a connection to say github which is ipv4 only they have to go through a proxy mm. uh well this would actually break them because it would unset the mm. environment, the proxy. Uh, and so then there's uh, other examples here on like how to do it in Apache by just deleting the header uh, early before it gets uh, goes through and so on. Uh, or uh, there's an example of doing it with HA proxy, delete the header, varnish, delete the header, uh, open BSD's RelayD and HTTPD. Mm -hmm. uh, you just do match request header remove deletes the header. Uh, the examples for light HTTPD, HTTPD2, uh, Microsoft IIS, um, Hiwartha, uh, Lightspeed web server, basically everything. Uh, but it's you know fairly simple to just delete that header or blank it out or whatever. Uh, interestingly, you can't fix it in PHP. <laughs> if you try to unset the variable with like dollar underscore server HTTP proxy, yeah, yeah, okay. it doesn't work because it actually calls getenv to get it and it goes back oh. to the... So the variable, the global variable in PHP, which is a copy of the environment, you can delete it from there, but uh, most of the web clients are going to actually look in the environment again because they're expecting the HTTP proxy to come from the environment, not from the <laughs> CGI stuff. So it makes sense that they do it that way. Uh, and uh, apparently overwriting the environment variable doesn't actually work. Hmm. Hmm. What, yeah. about, what about doing it... Uh what about you couldn't you would the, I guess this, this is sort of a crappy workaround for uh, systems that are running PHP, but you could just block outgoing proxy connections or outgoing. Yes, so they they also talk about that. Um, you know, don't trust the HTTP proxy setting under CGI, but also network configuration as prevention. 
a defense in depth strategy that can combat this vulnerability and entire classes of other security problems is to uh, severely restrict the outgoing requests your web server can make uh, to an absolute minimum. So no outbound connections at all or only to yeah. like Twitter API. Yeah, exactly. Of course, Twitter API's IP address changes, so that can be a bit more difficult. But hmm. uh, for example, if a web application is firewalled in such a way that it can't make any outgoing HTTP requests, an attacker will not be able to re- uh, to do the proxied request or whatever. The other uh, thing they say is if you're uh, make sure all your connections that your web server does make out to other hosts, especially say internal ones, are done over HTTPS, so they're encrypted, mm. so that uh, the proxy wouldn't be able to read the uh, the encrypted messages. That makes sense. So then they can only break your application, not steal your data. <laughs> uh, but they have all the details on how it works, what doesn't work to fix it, and so on on this nice uh, website they have here. Yep, and you can also find that at httpoxy.org or, of course, links with uh, notes taken in the show notes yep. if you guys want to find it. The, but I found that one pretty entertaining just yeah. because it's, oh, look, it's been around for 15 years. Obviously, nobody's been exploiting that very much lately, but... It took a good logo. That's what it took, Alan. It just needed a logo. Look at that thing. It kind of looks like something out of Futurama. <laughs> yep. I like it. Well, HTTP boxy. Box, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, boy, that's a great summary. Thank you, Alan. I had heard about it, but I hadn't really got a chance to read about it, so that was very informative. I want to take a moment and mention DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple, straightforward hosting provider. You can spin up a rig on their infrastructure in less than 55 seconds. Pricing plans start only $5. You can get a machine with 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Super fast transfer. All the drives are SSDs. They also now have block storage, uh, which is also SSD-based. And they have tutor- you can get up to 16 terabytes. And they have a new tutorial on how to take advantage of it and set it up and format and manage the volumes under Linux, which I'm going to read after the show. they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, and Germany. And they have a really, really, really great interface that allows you to set up a single machine or multiple machines. If you're a total noob or an expert, you'll find the control panel absolutely great. I also think you should note, just because we talk about it all the time, they have FreeBSD if you'd like to spin that up, mm-hmm. as well as all of your favorite Linux eyes. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean. It's one word. You apply that to your account as when you go to do the payment. You get the $10 credit. You try out the $5 rig two months for free. Their, their pricing is hourly based, really. That's actually mm-hmm. the, that's, that's, that's the secret. They display it in monthly, so that way it's super easy to wrap your brain organ around. But if you look at the hourly tab... For example, uh, you could run for three cents an hour a machine that has two gigs of RAM, two cores, 40 gigabyte SSD, and three terabytes of transfer. And those, uh, again, all yeah. sitting on top of SSDs, 40 gigabit E connections into the hypervisors for three cents an hour. Yeah. So uh, if you read in their FAQ or whatever, it turns out they actually always bill you based yeah. on the hourly price. They just have a hard cap at the monthly price, so that on months that have like thirty-one days, you don't get end up getting charged the was like ten dollars and seven cents or whatever. It's pretty cool, huh? Uh, and it's just so that your monthly fee is the same every month. Otherwise, some months it'd be a little bit less, and some months it'd be a little bit more, and that'd be kind of annoying. Yeah, yeah. So I, you but know, like if you if you if you buy it monthly but only run it for half the month, you only pay yes. half the monthly price. Yep. Because you can, you can, yeah. So that's that's really why I mentioned that. And then if you think about that, the promo code SnapOcean ten dollars, and you can run those things for three cents an hour. <laughs> yeah. Ten bucks is going to get you quite a ways. And it's a great way to support the show. And it's also a really great way to mess around with some super nice rigs where you have snapshots and backups. You can deploy applications. You have their flexible infrastructure. 
is really cool. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean. Okay, Alan, now if I'm not mistaken, our next story comes from uh, Cisco's Talos Group, which sounds like a superhero group orbiting above cities in like a some sort of massive observation center where they're always looking at people's security and running evaluations. It's like one part aircraft carrier, one part helicopter. I don't know. I'm just making it up. You're really describing that thing from the Avengers. <laughs> oh, is that it? <laughs> All right, so tell me what's going on with uh, yes. Oracle's outside-in technology, which almost sounds like a yeah. joke. Yes. Uh, well, so does almost Oracle technology, <laughs> right? But, yeah, so they have this outside-in technology, which is... Uh, uh, there. They call it outside in technology is a suite of software development kits that provides developers with a comprehensive solution to extract, normalize, scrub, convert, and view the contents of 600 different unstructured file formats. Oh, so this is some technology Oracle has that they try to sell people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in April, Telus blogged about one of the uh, outside in technology uh, related arbitrary code execution bugs that was patched by Oracle. In this post, they talk about the rest of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, Basically, Oracle's just done their July patch update, uh, critical patch update, which patched 276 vulnerabilities in basically every Oracle application. Dang. Um, and uh, now that those are patched, uh, Talos can tell us about the rest of these vulnerabilities. All right. So they said the impact of that vulnerability, plus these additional 18 bugs Wait. disclosed in these findings, is severe because so many third-party products use Oracle's OIT to parse and transform files. Ah, right, uh, like review. they license it out to them, so incorporate in their yeah. projects and stuff. Aha. So a review of the CERT advisory for the OIT-related things from January 2016 reveals a large list of third-party products, especially security and messaging-related products, that are based on this technology. The list of products includes, but is not limited to, uh, Avira Antivirus, uh, Google Search Appliance, uh, Guidance Encase, Microsoft Exchange, Novell GroupWise, uh, Raytheon Sureview, which is from a defense contractor, yeah. so you know that's being used by the government. Uh, Veritas, Symantec, Enterprise Vault. These are huge, massive, other. I mean, uh, yeah. WebSphere. Well, Microsoft Exchange. Exchange, yeah. Novell Holy Groupware, which is Exchange mm-hmm. for Novell. Mm-hmm. It, it's, these, these are, are all these huge. Are, and, and legacy, too, like in the case of Groupware. And, uh, well, yeah. obviously WebSphere as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, Talos has not confirmed that each of these third-party products listed above was actually affected by the rest of these, but they were affected by previous ones, so it seems they're using the technology, so they're probably all affected. Yeah. Uh, they, we have, however, confirmed that some of them are running vulnerable OIT-related code. For example, if uh, web-ready document viewing is enabled in Microsoft Exchange 2013 and earlier, an attacker could exploit these vulnerabilities by sending a malicious email attachment to a victim who opens uh, the email using the web preview system. And then, mm. pow, exploit it. Uh, further, if data loss prevention is enabled, this is where uh, the exchange server or uh, the virus scanner it scans every outbound uh, message and sees if it's secret company information. And if it is, it blocks it and notices that, hey, somebody's trying to steal our data. Okay. Uh, if that's enabled, the vulnerability can be triggered simply by sending an email with the malicious attachment outbound from an infected <laughs> exchange server. <laughs> sure, of course. Uh, if the Avira antivirus for exchange is in place, just sending or receiving a malicious email is sufficient since this program will scan all inbound and outbound email messages and try to process the files. Additionally, uh, multiple OIT vulnerabilities can be uh, conceivably be exploited in a change fashion uh, for a much more effective approach. 
So looking at some of the 18 vulnerabilities, there's one uh, where if the in the metadata of a PDF file, the size is set to too big, an integer overflow happens and remote code execution. Nice. Uh, TIFF extra sample code, uh, you get code execution. Uh, TIFF photometric inter, uh, interpolation, code execution. <laughs> uh, if the image width of a GIF file is, not, is maliciously set, code execution. <laughs> oh, no. Gemtex, code execution. Oh, no. PSI image files, code execution. No. Word DGG info, code execution. Oh, no. Uh, Microsoft works for Mac, database, uh, code execution. Microsoft Word, content access, uh, uh, Visual Studio, but code execution. Um, mm. A bitmap file, code execution. That one, bitmaps are very basic. It's like, this is how big the picture is, and here's the bits. <laughs> this is bad. There's no compression. There's very little chance for being able and, to do anything. And this is... And code execution. This is some of the core technology server. embedded in applications all across yep. the enterprise that are meant to analyze and look at network traffic. Well, specifically, yeah, these are meant for virus scanners, email scanners, uh, data loss prevention stuff. They're meant to scan every file going in and out of your network and make sure it's not malicious and it's not your secrets. Meanwhile, if you give it a slightly malformed BMP file, code execution. <laughs> Amazing. MacWorks uh, re uh, read recorded. A read record, memory corruption, uh, PDF files for kids, information leakage, PDF file null pointer dereference, denial of service, PDF uh, stack recursion overflow, denial of service, PDF uh, deflate, denial of service, PDF type, denial of service, PDF cross reference, denial of service, and then uh, Mac content access, denial of service. Uh, there's all 18 vulnerabilities with uh, examples of how to exploit them and so on. The Taylor's article is quite long and goes on and on and on. But the fact that you could get to remote code execution from a bitmap is like, come on. Yeah, that's bad. And, um, <clears throat> and that's really bad since it's, uh, it's, it's obviously what the work case is for this type of software. So yeah. it's so you, Oracle's like, hey, everybody, instead of writing your own code where you might make these mistakes... Let's all standardize on one really well-written set of code for analyzing all these file types. But then let's uh, let it be written by Oracle. <laughs> and then also, I mean, so on top of that's what this product is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be doing it for security products, yep. right? So where you should be but more than ever making sure this thing doesn't do something that's going to put your network more at risk. The whole point of this is to make your network more secure. That's why you and you pay so much for this stuff and in maintenance contracts too. And at the end of the day, it's the thing that could be making your network more vulnerable and with a bitmap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this the IoT thing is meant for everything. Uh, but it's being used all over. It just it reminds me of when we talked about Symantec the other week. It's like, oh yeah, we've been using an open source library to, to parse uh, .rar files, and we haven't updated it in seven years. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, that leads to the nice conclusion from Talos here. Over and over again, we see problems that arise from software using untrusted data as input without proper or the necessary validation of that data. And because not all software developers are experts on the multitude of file formats in existence, they are forced to rely on SDKs like Oracle's IoT or open source libraries. However, uh, the unfortunate reality is that vulnerabilities that are found in an SDK that is utilized by third parties will take additional time to patch. Mm. 
you know, even if Oracle now has released a patch for this, when do you think the next time the version bundled in Avira antivirus is going to be updated? Boy. Or, um, yeah, Microsoft Exchange server prior to 2013. How often do you think that, even if Microsoft releases an update for that in a timely fashion, how long do you think it'll be before people actually install it if they're running that older version of Exchange? And maybe I'm being cynical, but I can't help to think that maybe some of the contracts where they initially licensed this technology might not be in place anymore in some of these cases. They don't even get the new version of the SDK. I remember when my Nexus phone stopped getting updates simply because Google's contract with, I think it was Broadcom or whoever, expired, and so they were no longer developing drivers, and so they just stopped stopped issuing updates because they couldn't incorporate the driver anymore. And so my phone, which was supposed to be a Nexus device, just became end of life because a contract ended for driver maintenance. Yeah. And you've got to figure, you know, they license this SDK at some point, they purchase a certain version maybe from Oracle or a certain amount of years of uh, you know the of software access or licensing, but it doesn't necessarily mean they get indefinite updates. And some of these things could have been out for years. Yeah. So and like they say here, the workflow is first the organization that maintains the SK has to find out there's a problem, develop a fix, and then actually release the fix. And some amount of time later, third parties that utilize the SDK need to provide an update to their customers that actually uses the fix. And then those customers have to get around to actually installing the update in their application. Right? So it's literally, Talos finds a bug, has to tell uh, Oracle. Oracle then waits until they have to fix it, and then they wait until July to release it as their next big patch update. They only do like four times a year, right? And then Microsoft has to pick that up and include it in an update for Exchange Server, and then people have to actually install the update to Exchange Server. And Mm -hmm. I don't know very much about Exchange Server, but it feels like one of those things where if it's working, you really don't want to touch it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, some of this stuff is in antivirus products that are. I mean, what was you don't even know it's there. What what was uh, it was uh, like? For example, WebSphere. You think people are updating their WebSphere installations very often? The Mm. Google Search Appliance. How does that even work? How do I don't even know if they sell those anymore. Groupwise, Alan. (laughs) Groupwise. That's never gonna get fixed. And so this provides a much larger window than normal uh, for in which miscreants can exploit vulnerabilities in these third-party products. I wonder how much Oracle got. When would they charge for that? <laughs> a lot, I'm yeah. sure. Probably, yeah. And just so we don't act like Oracle's the only bad guy out there, Apple OS X has a bunch of similar vulnerabilities in their API for dealing with images on uh, OS X. Yeah, in fact, I have a story in the roundup. Ah, yes. Well, I, I included a part of it here because it's related. Yeah, sure. But yes, um... TIFF file, exploit on OS X. Uh, open EXR file, exploit right there. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is a format developed by uh, Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects company that did the Star Wars movies and stuff, right? Uh, wow. Digital asset exchange file format, also known as the collaborative design activities file, exploit. Uh, bitmap, also exploitable on OS X. Yay, bitmaps. <laughs> Uh, yeah, OSX Mavericks 10.9.5, Yosemite 10.10, El Capitan 10.11, iOS uh, 9.3, WatchOS 2.2, TVOS 9.2, etc., etc., etc. That uh, you know that just tells you computers are hard. Yeah, computers are really hard. Uh, but I'm so gonna exploit the hell out of your TV with a bitmap file. Bitmaps, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, and then the other thing was uh, we have the 
link from Oracle here, their mm. uh, critical patch update for July of 2016, which addresses 276 different vulnerabilities in okay. basically every application you've ever heard of and a lot you haven't. <sighs> uh, so they have a, in the appendix, they break it down by classes. The Oracle database server, huge list of fixes. Uh, Oracle Fusion middleware, huge, huge list of fixes. Oracle Hyperion. I don't even know what that is. That's uh, financial reporting. There oh you my. go, the stock market. Oh, my god. Uh, Oracle Enterprise Manager. Uh, Oracle Ops Center. <laughs> Oracle eBusiness Suite. Uh, Oracle Supply Chain. <laughs> Oracle PeopleSoft. Oracle JD Edwards. Oracle Cybell. Uh, Oracle Communication Applications. Um, they just have people sitting around coming up with products. services. Holy smokes. Well, well these, are, these are groups of services based on yeah, what industry. Sure, sure. Uh, Oracle Banking Platform. Oracle Financial Services Lending and Leasing. <laughs> Oracle FlexCube Direct Banking. Oracle Health Services Appliances. Oracle Insurance Appliances. Oracle Retail Applications. <laughs> Oracle Utilities Applications. So there's the power company too. Uh, Oracle Policy Automation. <laughs> Oracle Primera, which is healthcare, I think. Uh, Oracle Java, of which four vulnerabilities get a CVSS score of 9.6 out of 10. That's really high. <laughs> uh, what else we got? Oracle Sun Systems. Uh, looks like they even have a vulnerability in a switch and a, a router. And yeah, they have vulnerabilities and switches in here. Uh, Oracle Virtualization. Yep, even v VirtualBox gets updates here. Uh, MySQL, huge list of fixes. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of updates. Hmm. <laughs> well, I guess as Alan always says, patch your S. I'm looking at this. I, I'm surprised how many of these I've never heard of before. And I know I'm not really you know, in that actual space. Well, but those Most of those weren't program names. They were just categories of companies that like they just break it down by, if you're an insurance company, here's all the programs that... that sure. Of, and they make it a suite of apps and stuff like that, yeah. Which makes sense because I have I have heard I have seen them do that in the health industry. So I guess I just didn't make sense they do it across all yeah, of them. It's like banking, financial, insurance, yeah. uh, healthcare, etc. It's just like oh my god, Oracle's everywhere and it's all terrible. <laughs> oh man, Not I envy anybody trying to write corporate uh, like enterprise software. No, right? That's Jeez. Enterprise software is always terrible, but Oracle just is really good at making it really terrible. Yeah. Yeah, that is a particularly good one. Uh, any other thoughts on that story? <laughs> nope. All right. Well, then let's take a moment and let's thank Ting for sponsoring this episode of TechSnap. I'll tell you really simple. Ting's just mobile that makes sense. You pay for what you use. It's $6 a month for the line and then your usage on top of that. They have no contracts nor the termination fee. They have a CDMA and a GSM network you can choose from. The devices are unlocked. You get to speak to real human beings when you call in for technical support and they're staff full of geeks. I think this is probably the, the best experience if you pick up a Nexus device, uh, which I, I heavily recommend. Uh, you can often, often find them on sale. Uh, like if there's Alan repping his. Oh. Uh, and you know what? Uh, I just saw the Nexus 6P was going for, refurbished for a ridiculous mm -hmm. price. I've seen the 5X as low as $130. Uh, there's all kinds of great devices starting at all kinds of great price points. I mean, literally, if you want to buy it directly from Ting, Ting will start at 60 bucks. if you want just a feature phone to make calls. But they also have reasonable, decent Android devices, too, that are under two hundred dollars, and then when you start getting up to the two hundred dollar price range, you can really you can really get a nice phone. And then of course they have the real high end stuff too. 
uh, like the Nexuses, uh, like the Samsung S7s, the 6P, the Galaxy Note 5, the Moto X, the LG G5, all those. I mean, they'll, they'll go all the way up to the premium if you want, but I, I cannot recommend enough the Nexus, Nexus experience or a pure Android experience on the Ting network, however you get there. Because Ting doesn't get in the way of the updates. You get the, you get the good, actual, clean, stable implementation of Android that gets security updates, and you put it on the carrier that only charges you for what you use. So if you know how to use Wi-Fi, you're, you're pretty much going to be able to save money. I only spend about 30 to 40 to 45 bucks a month for three phone lines. Check them out at techsnap.ting.com. That's where you have to go. double that for one. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, used, I don't use the damn thing. I used to pay near 130 bucks uh, a month, or 140 bucks a month after taxes and stuff. Um, and they have a savings calculator if you want to see how much you would save. But first, got to go to techsnap.ting.com. You get a discount off a device or a service credit, and you support the show. It's a great place to go, techsnap.ting.com. So Krebs is here with the value of a hacked company. I got to tell you, that's got my uh, interest peaked, Alan. Tell me about it. Yeah, so he's had uh, um, infographics like this before, like the value of a hacked email address and what attackers, mm -hmm, different mm -hmm. attackers might use that for. Mm -hmm. And he's also done one on what a hacked computer is worth. But now he's done one on what a whole hacked company is worth. That's great. This is, uh, most organizations only grow in security maturity the hard way. That is, from the intense learning that takes place in the wake of a costly data breach. That may be because so few company leaders really grasp the criticality of computers and network security to the organization's overall goals and productivity, and fewer still have taken an honest inventory of what may be at stake in the event that their assets are compromised. If you're unsure how much your organization's strategic assets may be uh, intimately tied up in all this technology stuff, ask yourself what would be worth uh, or what would be of special worth on a network intruder or to a network intruder from your company, right? Uh, so here's a look at some of the key corporate assets that may be of interest and value to modern bad guys. So they break down uh, the company by a bunch of different things. First, intellectual property, right? Do you have trade secrets, research and development, design documents, blueprints, anything like that? You know, maybe you're like, well, we're not an engineering company. We don't invent things, so we don't have any trade secrets. It's like, what about a list of your customers? How much would your competitors really love to buy a list of your customers just to get in touch with them and steal their customers, right? Or your strategic plans or just, you know, there's usually something in your company that you don't want other people to know. But then there's physical property. If I breach your network and can override your security system and get in your building, I could steal your physical desktops or your backups and so on. Or, you know, I could steal your phones or hack your VoIP system and make phone calls to Nigeria for free and so on, right? Or to uh, premium rate numbers and run up your bill. Uh, or, you know, maybe I just want to get in your building in order to get to somebody else that's in the same building or something, right? So there's a mm. bunch of physical options. Uh, but also, what about getting access to just your partners, right? Uh, the list of other companies you do business with. Or maybe uh, they're more likely to fall for a phishing scam you know, somebody's more likely to fall for a phishing scam if you send them an email from someone they know. So maybe yeah. I hack your company just for the fact of sending phishing emails to all your uh, your suppliers and your customers, hmm. right? Uh, or maybe, you know, you bill your customers or your suppliers, so you have their bank account details laying around in a file, and I can steal their money. Uh, or maybe their network is connected to yours. They have a VPN or something. Target. Right? <clears throat> Yes, exactly. Target. They they broke into the the 
air conditioning company's monitoring station and then use that to get into Target. And we've actually covered several stories, too, where partners or contractors have been hacked and then the company gets exposed. And Yeah, that's been a reoccurring theme, actually, over the years. Yeah. Uh, but also, then, HR data, information about your employees. You know, you got uh, W-2s and tax fraud, insurance fraud, uh, identity theft. But maybe it's just so I can do phishing attacks because I know everybody's name. So I can send, you know, I know not only their name but their position. So I can send everybody in the company an email that looks like it's from the HR health insurance rep uh, saying, hey, go to this thing and fill out this form and, you know, get a bunch of stuff or something. Uh, All kinds of stuff like that. Or other HR data, just information about your uh, employees or uh, anything that I could then use to impersonate one of them to do something else or you know, anything like that. Uh, also financials, not only draining the company bank account, but maybe company credit cards that I could steal or all the customer credit cards that are on file there, right? Uh, or employee bank account details from the payroll system or other sensitive financial data, you know, uh, if you're about to do a merger with some company and that could affect your stock price, it'd be really advantageous to the attacker to know this because they can actually play the stock market using that information and make a whole bunch of money, right? Basically, insider trading and so on. But also virtual property, right? I have access to all your cloud stuff now. So <laughs> if I have your Amazon keys, I can run a bunch of instances to do password cracking on my own or send spam or whatever. <laughs> I can, uh, evil, I can hack your website and use it as a watering hole attack, right? Put some malware on your website. Now, everybody that comes to your website is getting infected and becoming part of my botnet. Mm. Or steal your software licenses or your encryption keys or your code signing certificate. Right, we've seen that happen where some company that makes a little Windows utility, compression utility, like an alternative to WinZip, uh, gets hacked and uh, they steal their code signing certificate and start signing viruses with it, and uh, all of a sudden the virus is trusted by your computer because it's signed by this company that's supposed to be reputable, and and so on. And there's a huge number of things that it could be, and you know Krebs goes on to say this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. I'm sure we can all think of other examples. And perhaps if I receive, uh, receive enough suggestions from readers, I'll update the graphic. Uh, but the point is that whatever paltry monetary value the cyber criminal underground may assign to these stolen assets individually, they're each likely worth far more to the victimized company, right? You know, your list of employees is going to sell on the black market for $100 or whatever, but I'm sure you would pay more than $100 to have them not get it. Uh, but you have to think of that, right? Uh, if indeed the price can be placed on them at all. You know, some of the stuff is priceless, basically. Hmm. Uh, it says, in past years, most traditional financially oriented cybercrime was opportunistic. That is, the bad guys tend to focus on getting in quickly, grabbing all the data they know how to get and uh, to easily monetize, and then perhaps leaving behind malware on the hack system that abused them for spam distribution. So before it was, go after anything you know is worth money and maybe... Uh, keep a foothold in there to send spam. Nowadays, it's uh, an opportunistic mass-mailed malware infection could quickly and easily morph into a much more serious and sustained problem for the victim organization. Just as Target. You know, uh, they got in by an email spam into the monitoring company, but eventually that wormed their way into the payment systems at Target. Uh, This is partly because many of the criminals who run large spam crime machines responsible for pumping out the latest malware threats have grown more adept at mining and harvesting stolen data. They've realized that more and more information is worth money. Before, it's like, oh, you go after the credit card numbers. Now, it's like, what I actually want is the payroll records where everybody's information so I can do tax fraud, right? 
Uh, it's also never been easier for a disgruntled employee to sell access to their employees' systems or data. Thanks to the uh, proliferation of open and anonymous uh, cybercrime forums on the dark web that serve as a bustling marketplace for such commerce. So, you know, if you get fired from somewhere and they haven't locked down your credentials yet or before you leave, uh, before you quit because you don't like it there or whatever, you steal all the data hmm. and then you can sell it for money. Uh, organizational leaders in search uh, for a clue on how to increase both their security maturity and resilience of all their uh, precious technology stuff could do far worse uh, than to start with the cybersecurity framework uh, published by the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, uh, which is a federal agency that works with industry to develop and apply technology measures and standards. Uh, so, you know, they publish all these guides on how to set up your network, and they're actually not bad. Uh, so they have a, also a PwC publishes this primer uh, that does a good job at explaining why the NIST framework uh, may be worth a closer look. And there's some extra stuff on his website about it. But, you know, you should definitely take a look at it and consider what value your company would have to an attacker. You know, and it's obvious, too, that the answer is uh, the only real strategy here is defense in depth. Because when he outlines those things there, if you don't have a multi-layer defense strategy, and I know that sounds really buzzy, but it's true... Yep. Yeah, the contractor scenario, the vendor scenario, it, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, the value of your company could just simply be your CPU and your bandwidth. Yep. Sometimes it's your data and it's what you do, but it, honestly, yep. it could just be your payroll records, uh, or it, you know, like we just talked about, it could be just your connection to other companies. Yeah. You know, uh, we don't care anything about this company that monitors air conditioners. They don't have any money. But they do have a VPN into Target's network. And isn't, and it, isn't it interesting now that the air conditioning company has to be thinking about how their security setup is going to impact their customers? Because if they, like, yeah. I've got to imagine not. that's going to hurt future business if you are the company that caused Target, <laughs> that, that Target breach. Like, you've got to have your VPN set up locked down, and you're an air conditioning company. Yeah. You're not thinking about that at all. And uh, you know, but also Target probably wasn't thinking about the air conditioning company as a as an attack vector either. You know, my my experience uh, working for hospitals too is a lot of their systems back then would have like these little dedicated VPN boxes that would put them on the LAN uh, when the vendor got in and the vendor would initiate the connection. You know, they would call in, they would talk to the vendor, and then the vendor would start the connection. It wasn't something like the user went and plugged in. And so as part of our audit was unplug the power from these, uh, like they were little like D-links or something, unplug the power from these and do not plug them in until you have requested support because they're getting on your LAN, and then they just have full access. And it's that same situation. And the, and the mitigating step, and I, I guess you could call this defense in-depth, but the mitigating step was disable them physically Disable that vendor's connection physically until you've requested that they're the ones that initiate that they initiate that connection. Then you rush over there and <laughs> plug it back in. It's not a great system, but you know at least it was a layer of defense. Uh, any other thoughts, Mr. Jude, on this story? Um, nope, that's about it for that one. All right. Well, then I have thoughts on IX Systems. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Go there to learn more about IX Systems and support the show. It's a landing page they've set up for our audience, where you can get a white paper that helps move things along in your company. IX Systems builds systems for your next big project: infrastructure, data storage, compute, whatever it is. Pick a server that meets your needs and talk to their experts, and you'll be blown away with the level of customer service, expertise, and quality of product that IX has. And I mean quality 
quality of product in terms of the actual quality of the end goods you get, but that whole project experience IX takes into account. That includes pre-sales, engineering, support, all of it. It's like nobody else does it, and it's something that Alan and I really, really have loved over the years compared to all of the other hardware vendors we've chosen or the times where we've tried to build it ourselves and be experts. There's just simply no beating IX. And the crazy thing that you got to wrap your head around is the prices are, are exceptionally reasonable as well. And I don't know if we mentioned that enough because I think they clearly, clearly are in a category where they could be an absolute premium price brand, especially with mm -hmm. the deal, deals and partners that they work so closely with. But I got to tell you, they managed to make it extremely reasonably priced, too. Check yeah. them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And I heard from a little birdie they're going to be going to a lot of upcoming uh, events, including Ohio Fest, uh, some BSD events, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they'll post well, they'll all be, of those. They'll be hosting MeetBSD. Yep. And I'm sure they'll have uh, recaps at their blog, ixsystems.com yep. slash blog. But start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and find out why both Alan and I don't buy anything else. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks, guys, for sponsoring the TechSnap program of that. Check out those rigs built by those powerful Intel processors and also some of the solutions they can build around them on their blog, like the uh, Thunder X. It's pretty great. All right, Alan, we, should, we would be negligent now in our duties at this point. It has become tradition to mention that the BSD, no, BSD Now program came out today, episode yes. 151, Fuzzy Auditing. And mm -hmm. uh, it sounded like there's some interesting stuff in here, including some talk yep. about Let's Encrypt. What's, what else? Yep. Uh, yeah, we talked about uh, fuzz testing the OpenBSD kernel, uh, a C implementation of Let's Encrypt instead of all the silly shell scripts and Python and so on that other people do. Uh, what else are we talking about? Lots of interesting stuff. Check it out. 151 of the BSDNow program. Go get the HD version. By the time this show's all done, you can have more high-resolution Jude in your face because this show's about halfway done. With that said, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JP website, or maybe start a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. We'll get there, but first we'll go to the emails. This first one comes in from Andrew, and Andrew writes, Hi, Alan and Chris. I just finished watching the episode on ransomware and how ZFS could make it... Uh, uh, could make it easy to notice because your pool would fill up. I recently read about a bug or limitation of ZFS someone encountered in a Reddit post, and when their pool was unintentionally filled to 100%, it essentially locked the pool. The user couldn't perform a delete because there was no space to write the metadata required. Putting two and two together, I could this create an unrecoverable situation? If your pool's already over 50% full and it's hit by some ransomware which fills you to 100%, could it hit this issue? How can a ministry recover from such a situation? Can ZFS perform a rollback or force a delete and at, when the disk is at 100%? How okay, can so, so before you keep going, um, I, I wonder if the person on Reddit was using a really old version of ZFS. There is a reservation now that, uh, like internally, that mostly prevents that. Uh, if you are on an older version and run into this, uh, one trick is if you do uh, echo minus n and then in quotes nothing, so just a blank in quotes, uh, and then redirect that to a file, you'll truncate the file rather than actually uh, deleting it or something that generates more metadata. You're just taking the file that was big and making it zero bytes, and that can free up enough space to then let you continue. Um, 
but usually, you know, you could just delete a snapshot or something. Uh, but in general, it doesn't make your com- pool completely unusable anymore. Uh, okay. That was fixed a couple of years ago. But if you're on an old version, that can happen still. Um, <clears throat> in general, uh, it's not that big. Uh, you should still be able to do a rollback because you're actually undoing stuff, not writing anything new. And uh, obviously, yes, you could add more capacity to your pool, and it would get bigger. So and, that uh, reserve, uh, can you manually set that? I think that's part of kind well, of so the question. There, uh, there's an internal reservation for administrative stuff that's different. Uh, so okay. when the pool says it's 100 100% full, there's actually still some space left for ah. administrative operations. Okay, okay, that's one thing. Separate from that, what I do is what he describes in the second part of the email, so you can read that now. Yeah, he says, how can an admin try to guard themselves against this? Can ZFS tap into a reserved data set space for metadata rights in a pinch? I.e., could it create an empty, unused data set and reserve 50 megs for situations such as this? Yeah, so that's what I do. I create a data set called reservation, or reserved, uh, and set a ZFS reservation on it, although I usually do much more than 50 megabytes. Uh, Depending on the size of your pool, I usually do, like, I usually start it at like 20% of the pool uh, so that when the pool is getting full, I get the notice sooner and I'm like, okay, then I just go in, lower the reservation to say 10% of the pool and order yeah. more hard drives. You know, I, I also really like what Tim P saying in the chat room. He says, ransomware is not as much as a threat on a Samba share hosted on a ZFS rig. Snapshots are read only and not exposed to the Samba users. So if crypto uh, str- uh, is attacking over a Samba share... It's well, not really. This, this is actually what this is about, though. If you have that snapshot, every file that they encrypt, they're overwriting the whole file. So now you're going to have oh, true, the yes. snapshot version of the original file yes. and the encrypted version. So it could true. eventually fill your pool. Uh, but yes, um, the, f- the pool getting full is no longer as okay. complicated to deal with as it used to be. Now, uh, uh, neither one of us are networking hardware gurus, but Jason writes in, he says, Hello, Alan and Chris. First of all, thanks, for Alan, for answering my question about non-SQL databases last week. Now I'm wondering about InfiniBand connections. I've used Ethernet for a while, but how does InfiniBand work? What are the benefits and disadvantages of it besides improved throughput over Ethernet and gigabit connections? And how expensive is equipment with InfiniBand? Thanks for all you do. Uh, so InfiniBand was quite a bit more expensive before, although some of it you can get used on eBay and so on fairly cheap now. Although it's mostly only used uh, for interconnects in supercomputers now. Um, basically, before uh, 10 gigabit and higher Ethernet was really popular, then you were looking at uh, speeds that were better than gigabit Ethernet, like 2.5 or 8, 16, or even up to 32 gigabits per second. Uh, but now, you know, 40 gigabit Ethernet is available, and even 100 gigabit Ethernet is available. Uh, but InfiniBand also had the uh, sometimes had better latency or lower latency, so it wouldn't take as long. Uh, but InfiniBand also doesn't have the same range, right? It's it's more about uh, InfiniBand is for connecting stuff in the same rack, whereas Ethernet obviously can go up to 100 meters, right, which is a lot further. Um, and so InfiniBand had its place, although it's basically less so now. Uh, because you can get Ethernet that fast, and it's usually a lot cheaper. Um, but, you know, um, it, is, it still has its value in a number of places. Yep, definitely. Okay. Danny writes in, IPsec VPNs and maybe OS options. Hey, guys, thanks for the great show. I'm looking to set up a site-to-site VPN between my house and a DigitalOcean droplet. Uh, thanks for the credit, by the way. My current firewall supports only IPsec VPNs, and I was wondering what would be your recommended IPsec VPN under Linux or Maybe FreeBSD, which I could use on the DO droplet to keep up the great work, Dunny. Um, I'm not even sure if it has a name. There's just yeah, 
IPsec. Yeah, there's not uh, really. There's one that's built into FreeBSD. Uh, uh, names of programs vaguely related to it that I know is like uh, StrongSwan and Raccoon. <laughs> but um, I don't actually know if those are even related to it. I've never done that much with IPsec VPNs yet. Uh, but there are some guides uh, for doing the IPsec stuff in the FreeBSD handbook. And hopefully that'll be enough to get you started. I was also looking. There's some people that are crazy enough to try to get PFSense working. Oh, my gosh. Wow. There's people crazy enough to get PFSense working on a droplet, which would be... Yep. That would be the way to go. Uh, I yeah, was... You just have two droplets. Make the smallest one a PFSense and then use the private networking they offer to uh-huh. connect to your other droplets. Uh, I... You know, I'm sure it involves installing FreeBSD and then doing some sort of conversion or something. But also, is really well, yeah. I, so you start with a FreeBSD droplet, then you get to the HTML5 console that DigitalOcean gives you, and then yeah, you do whatever. So uh, in FreeBSD, you can overwrite the swap space with the installer for PFSense, and then <laughs> boot into it basically. But is IPsec truly the only option? I mean, SSH tunnels. Well, they're saying uh, that's the only one that to do the network wide gets at his house yeah. or his office. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I think but yes, th- if you I think replace the one at your house with a PFSense, then you can do uh, IPsec, PPTP, or yeah. uh, OpenVPN. Danny, or I think you need to uh, look at your options. I, think you need, I mean, otherwise, just use but them. IPsec works. I know. And I, it, yeah, it, otherwise, the, yeah, The advantage to IPsec is that almost every OS has a built-in client, it's including true. Windows, Android, FreeBSD, and Linux. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this next one's really just a call-out because it's not a question for us, but Lon Venu, which he's not getting any responses in the subreddit, and I, so I wanted to give him a shout. I mean, you know what? I'm going to give it an upvote. Right now, uh, he has a question about security and penetration testing, uh, and he's got some guides, and he just put it out there. So if anybody has experience with that for somebody who's looking to get started and learn more about that, he could use some help. Uh, so Lon started a thread, which we will have linked in the feedback section, and uh, he's looking for some advice. And mm-hmm. This made a call out to the community. Great. Yes, I know there's uh, you, quite a few people that are interested in that, and also quite a few people that uh, watch that work in that industry. So. Yeah. Yeah, 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 very much so. So I think that's pretty cool. So check it out if you want to help him out. Uh, he could use some answers. All right. If you want to get your question answered on the show and we need your email, send them in to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact link. If you've been thinking about doing it, please send them in. We love answering. And the summer usually slows down a little bit, too. So uh, if there's been one that's on your mind, go ahead and send it into the show. And we'll try to answer it. It doesn't have to be necessarily about anything you've heard us answer in this episode. There's all kinds of topics we enjoy tackling. So go ahead and send them in to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you guys some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our intelligence network over at techsnap.reddit.com. And this first one caught my attention. You know, this seems like probably a a hunt that was in progress for a while and required lots of interagency organization. The main guy behind Kick-Ass Torrents was arrested. Um, The domain was seized, and uh, apparently the guy was arrested in Poland. Yeah, but here's the punchline. Here's the punchline that I think people might find particularly interesting. They really were able to get him thanks to data turned over by Apple. The complaint reveals Apple, that the feds posed, uh, posed as an advertiser and got a bank account associated with the site, so they did that part, and then they got an IP address. They went to Apple with the IP address, and Apple handed over the details of an iTunes purchase that he had made from the same IP address, which was associated with a name and his uh, iTunes.atme account. And so they connected the two together because he also used that same IP to log in to the Kick-Ass Turrence Facebook page, so they had... 
an advertising query, the iTunes purchase, and they got information from Facebook, and they used all three to prove it was him. And then they then they went then they went down on him. They say that uh, in an effort to evade law enforcement, he allegedly relied on servers located in countries around the world and moved his domains due to repeated seizures and civil lawsuits. His arrest in Poland, however, demonstrates again that cybercriminals can run, but they cannot hide from justice. <laughs> and they claim the Kickass Torrent site distributed billion dollars in pirated stuff. I, that's the thing that right. ki- that's the thing that kills me. Because you know the, all those files were hosted on that website, Alan. All those files. That's how torrents work. Yeah, I'm sure if they uh, they seized the servers, they found all those files. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's this making money by abusing phone-based two-step verification? Okay, yes, I'm so ready. We all love two-factor auth, right? What could be better than two-factor auth that pays you? <laughs> so it turns out over at Instagram, uh, with their two-factor auth system, if you put in a premium rate number, like a 1-900-sex number or whatever, into your two-factor auth thing, uh, after it... After you fail to get the text message a couple times, they'll just call you. Uh, and, you know, uh, in the one example here, it charges you one British pound for every 30 minutes, which is kind of low, but you can have much more expensive premium rate numbers too, hmm. where you charge, you know, two ninety nine a minute or whatever. Yeah. Like those dating lines and the, the phone sex and all I've that kind of I've forgotten all about that stuff. Yeah. So basically, you set up a couple of those and put them in as uh, the two-factor auth things for your Instagram account and then log in constantly and trigger them. Hmm. And then they call you, and then you get paid. It looks and, like uh, they're... The, with the one scam, they were looking at making a couple thousand dollars a month. <laughs> huh. Uh, of course, they got in touch with Instagram's owner, Facebook, and they've patched the vulnerability, although it's not clear that Google has fixed it yet. Although Google will also uh, blacklist and not try to call you after a couple of attempts to prevent you abusing it to basically call people and, and harass them with, the cell, uh, with phone calls, but... Just an interesting little tweak to the two-factor thing is that, you know, you set up two-factor and try to be a good guy, and then turns out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just reading, too. It looks like they were they found flaws in Microsoft and Google's uh, VoIP services, too. So, yeah, uh, a little interesting here, taking advantage of uh, some of those systems. Kind of funny. Hey, uh, I wanted to, uh, speaking of Apple just a moment ago, this is just a follow-up to what you mentioned. The press is calling it Apple's own stage fright. Yep. Those flaws. I guess they also were in iOS, too. They had a resemblance to the stage fright vulnerability in Android. Well, in particular, it was just that if you could uh, send uh, a bitmap file attached to a, a like as a MMS message, you could crash somebody's phone, mm-hmm. and every time they reopened the messaging app, it would just crash again. <laughs> Ultimate troll. Yeah. Okay, so the U.S. government has published a Postgres Advanced Server Security Technical Implementation Guide. Yes. Guide. Guide. So, uh, Postgres SQL's Enterprise DB has become the first open source database to ever pass the Defense Information Systems Agency's testing, and have one of these uh, security technical implementation guides, which is basically how to set it up securely. Wow. Uh, for use by the government. Wow. First Good open source for them. database to get certified that way. Take that, Oracle. Now what it's you got. That. Now what you got. All right. So uh, speaking of enterprise companies, Microsoft is transitioning Skype to, how's this for some wording, a more modern mobile-friendly architecture, a.k.a. they're finally taking out the last bits of P2P infrastructure for Skype. Right. See, that's one way to word it, whereas the story I picked for this is Microsoft killing off the last bits of P2P in Skype and killing all privacy, and uh, all old clients will stop working, and they're ending support for Skype on your smart TV, Skype on your PlayStation 3, yep. and a bunch of other, anything yep. where they don't feel like updating the software. 
So, and I've I've done a, so. I've, I've finally had a chance to play around with the new uh, Electron-based um, WebRTC backended Skype for Linux client, which doesn't do video right now. And uh, at least to my ears, there is a definite degradation in audio quality between the Windows version. Well, I and doubt Linux they're version. using the uh, well. They're not using the proprietary Skype audio codec. They're mm-hmm. using probably just Kelter o- with Opus. Them. Maybe I, I don't know. Yep. But there's something about the Skype codec that I don't. It's it feels it's like to my ears it sounds better. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, <laughs> somebody made it and patented it, and that was the whole point. But yeah, so yeah, so there you it's go. Sad. But the bigger thing is that yeah, it means all the old clients will go away, uh, and uh, it's you know going to be. It's really going to suck for people that like to Skype off their TV. Also, like the slash dot headline points out. Totally, totally changes the privacy paradigm on Skype. Yes. You know, when Skype first started, it was all peer-to-peer, and so there was no central server to ever, you know, there was no way to wiretap Skype. And Microsoft's been pushing forward, you know. It kind of brings back to, if you remember, um, Operation Orchestra, the talk from Fosdem about if I was the NSA, this is how I would attack stuff. It was you convince Microsoft to buy Skype and set it up so it, all calls get routed through a, a cloud server mm-hmm. so that we can wiretap any. Skype and I think I've seen Skype. emails and documents that suggest that the FBI did did work with Microsoft at the time that they purchased Skype. There was well, actually, uh, I think the orchestra one was more when eBay bought Skype. Is that what it was? Remember, it was eBay that bought Skype originally, yes. and it really didn't make sense for eBay. Right, and I thought it was that eBay didn't really cooperate the way that they wanted, right. and when Microsoft and sold it off to Microsoft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Next story in the roundup: Seagate has a 10 terabyte hard drive with helium. Well, a, a bunch of new ones. So they announced an entire new line of hard drives, and they're renaming all the product lines. Uh, and it's called the the Data Guardians. Uh, it sounds like a bad Saturday oh, morning cartoon. No. So your regular desktop drives uh, stick with their current name, Barracuda, and the uh, they'll have Barracuda Pro. So the Barracuda will be your regular desktop hard drive. And, uh, you know, they have 2.5-inch and 3.5-inch versions going up to 4 terabytes. 4 terabytes uh, is not going to be around much. I mean, that's, that's good. Right. but That's the Barracuda, and that comes with a two-year warranty. Okay. But if you get the Barracuda Pro, that comes in 6, 8, and 10 terabyte capacities mm. and has a five-year warranty. That's pretty nice. And they're SATA 6G, even though they're spinning. Dual plane balancing and power management. How could so they possibly? Dual plane balancing is uh, just anti-vibration stuff. So the six, so a six gigabit SATA interface is that going to get random? Is that going to improve random sequence? What does that, what does that get you uh, with spinning rust? Well, with a ten terabyte, the data density is so high, you can actually get a more megabytes oh, per second. Oh, okay. All right. Now you're well, talking. I think it's just an advertising thing. So yeah. So. They have uh, the Barracuda, and then Barracuda Pro is kind of the new thing. Then the um, the solid state hard drives, the ones that are basically some flash and mm-hmm. some regular hard drive. What's it called, Alan? Named Firecuda. <laughs> so they Fire come in, uh, one and two terabyte versions with eight gigs of flash and 64 megs of RAM on them uh, and their new multi-tier caching technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has about eight megs of flash so that it has a write buffer into your most commonly used files. So it accelerates a little bit, but they're really more meant for laptops than, and they're not really meant for servers. But they've announced the, the new NAS drives will still be called Iron Wolf. Yes. And there's this nice wolf logo at the top. Uh, and they're available in one, two, three, four, six, eight, and 10 terabyte capacities. Mm. Um, four terabyte and lower are 5,900 RPM, like the current stuff. But six, uh, eight, and 10 terabytes are full 7,200 RPM. 
They have the Agile Array Optimized Disk Performance for Error Recovery. So that's something like TLER. Uh, so that if there's an error on the drive, it won't take too long to time out and screw up your RAID array. Uh, dual plane balancing and rotational vibration sensors. So uh, these are basically so when you put a whole bunch of drives in one chassis, the vibration doesn't create a resonance and like screw up your speeds. They're RAID optimized uh, and uh, they have a three-year warranty. RAID optimized, what do you think that means? It's Firmware? Just uh, basically a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing is that the NAS drives are cheaper and have a shorter warranty than the Pro drives. The oh. Barracuda Pros that are designed for like gaming and, and power users are five-year warranty, 300 terabytes a year uh, rating, whereas the NAS drives are only 180 terabytes a year and only a three-year warranty. But they're cheaper. Uh, and then they have their surveillance drives, which are called Skyhawk. I love it. Uh, but if you look at the very surveillance bottom... Surveillance drive. Uh, Jeez. Well, they're just for surveillance I, systems. Yeah, I know. I know. Differently, it's differently tuned uh, firmware. It actually if, it tells you that that must be a huge market now of the hard drive industry, right? Well, uh, what security system still uses VHS? Right. right. What else are they going to record to? But if you scroll to the very bottom, they have some pricing information, which I think people will find interesting. I think uh, this is only specifically the 10 terabyte drives. Uh, but yeah, here we go. Ten terabyte Paraguda Pro with a five year warranty uh, is currently priced at five hundred and thirty five dollars. Yeah, and the but the ten terabyte NAS Iron Wolf is only four hundred and sixty or sorry four hundred seventy dollars. And that's still they're both seven two hundred RPM drives. Yeah, and the Iron Wolf is, would be what I'm going to be putting in a file server. Yeah, uh, so, but I almost might buy the Barracuda Pro just for the warranty, of the longer warranty. But what about RAID optimization? Well, yes, there's advantages to the NAS one and the warranty of work better. And the other thing, I don't usually, my drives don't, usually they're too small three plus years later, right? I'm not usually worried about it after three years anyway. Uh, but it's interesting just looking at that price, um, comparing that to what I pay elsewhere, that's on target. Like uh, if a four terabyte drive is 200 bucks, then a... Uh, a 10 terabyte drive for 500 whatever dollars is actually not bad. Hmm. Yeah. I can't wait. Like those prices sound kind of high, but it's just because that's really freaking big. 10 terabytes. I'm ready. My my body is ready. Uh, you so know, it's a little more expensive than the the like the 3 terabyte drives that are kind of ubiquitous in the market right now, but that's uh, you know, and these are brand new. They'll they'll come down Fairly quickly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And by the time I'm ready to purchase, it'll probably be down even further. Yeah. And, you know, I might go for the six or eight terabytes, depending on the, mm. you know, those are a lot less expensive per yeah. gigabyte than the 10 terabyte. Yeah, because that's the high end, 10 terabyte. Yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. So, but, you know, six and eight terabyte drives that aren't shingled, pretty nice. You know, Backblaze is going to be buying some of these. <laughs> Uh, so Stack Exchange was having a problem with regular expressions. <laughs> so they had an outage. Uh, the outage uh, took them 10 minutes to identify, 14 minutes to write the code to fix, and 10 minutes to roll out the fix. To where they just bragging, kind of. I know, but right? Being down for 30 minutes is kind of a big deal for them. Right? So the direct cause was a malformed post that caused one of the regular expressions to consume high CPU on a web server. This caused the homepage so to stop responding fast enough, and since the homepage is what Load Balancer uses for a health check, the entire site became unavailable and took the servers out of rotation. <laughs> yeah. So somebody was actually trying to exploit the site or something by sending a malformed post gaining 20,000 characters of white space. Uh, <laughs> On a comment line that said, then, you know. Well, 
They found it. They got they it worked. It's kind of just a funny yeah. outage. Uh, okay, next story in the round. An engineer gets tired of waiting for telecom companies to wire his home, so he does it himself. I love yeah. these stories. His entire town he set up to have it. Uh, but this takes place in uh, Barcelona, uh, near Barcelona, Spain, uh, where you know the government hasn't passed laws saying that you know community telcos can't start up like that. Uh, I did a uh, for our 10th anniversary episode of the Linux Action Show. We did an interview with a guy who built a Wisp uh, out on an island because nobody wanted to bring out you know. Yep high-speed internet there, and it's so cool to see people build that themselves. It was a super cool interview if you guys want to check that episode out. Uh, okay, so this one I thought just, I don't know, made me smile. Who knows where it's going? Microsoft has been ordered to fix the excessively intrusive and insecure Windows 10. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess uh, that's from... Yeah. France's National Data Protection Commission mm -hmm. has ordered Microsoft to stop collecting excessive data and tracking browsing <laughs> by users without their consent. There you go. We'll see where this goes. I just put it in here because it may, may go nowhere, but yeah, kind of funny. Uh, speaking of France, Windows 10 collect... Oh, that's the same story yeah, right there. Same, yeah. Uh, all right, moving right along. Uh, this is a good one. I saw this crop up this week. How and why free, D free DOS keeps DOS alive after 22 yep. years. Yeah, great. and it talks a little bit about, you know, why FreeDOS is still going, how it's useful, you know. Mm -hmm. How many people still use FreeDOS to flash firmware on their computer? Quite a few. <laughs> uh, I had to do it recently for a server. Uh, and uh, But also, you know, for playing old games or some companies use it, you know, they have software they bought that only works under DOS. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's fun. sometimes uh, it's fun to just go play around. Like recently, actually, I got the the seasonal work on my car and the swapping up my winter tires for my summer ones done in my car for free in exchange for an old Pentium 2 so that they could, uh, the software that runs their tire alignment machine at the shop, no. uh, it only runs Windows 98. Uh, and they needed an, a computer old enough that Windows 98 would work on it. That's hilarious, Alan. That's great. That's a great story. That's really good. You know what's not a great story? Uh, Verizon and uh, their plan for unlimited data users who use over 100 gigs a month. And I know that sounds like a lot, but I, I'm here to tell you 100 gigs a month is not a lot if you consume most of your content via the internet and say you're right, a cord cutter. I know some people you, uh, have wired caps of only 100 gigabytes. They're yeah. talking about people using 100 gigabytes over their yeah. phone. I know, no, over a MiFi connection. In most, I, as somebody okay. who lives on, at his house on a MiFi connection, okay. I do sometimes use that much right. data. Uh, so this really sucks because they have till August 31st. Just, the thing that sucks is... Which it's a very short time frame, honestly. Normally yeah. you would expect to be given a, a more time. And on a plan that has that much data would be like $500 a month from Verizon. Well, that's, they actually mentioned that, that it's like our biggest plan has 100 gigabytes, but it's meant to be shared by a, like a whole family, and it costs $450. I, I guess maybe they just don't... I don't think they uh, realize that there are people who work professionally on the internet and need well, a lot of data. They just don't care. They just want to charge. They want yeah. those people to stop getting the cheap connection and start paying them four hundred fifty dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll happen all around. If Verizon's doing it, uh, then right. Well, this is this is just you know they stopped selling unlimited a long time ago, but there's some people still on it, and they want to get those people transitioned to not being on unlimited. What's interesting is they just just with a few months ago raised the price. Unlimited. Yeah, they, they tried just raising the price of the unlimited twenty dollars to get people to switch to something cheaper, but it only got the people that don't use a lot to switch, not the people that are going to use a lot. I really hope. And uh, so they're like, "Oh, all you people that use a lot, we're just going to cut off your service entirely." I really hope others don't follow because that could be a major bummer. Well, it it comes down to 
if you have a model like Ting, where you pay for the amount of bandwidth you use, then you, it the company doesn't care how much you use. Yeah. But if your Verizon is like, oh, we're going to give people uh, as much as you want for $10 or whatever, it costs you money. Mm-hmm. 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 It's like, yes, unlimited. anybody selling you unlimited anything is trying to trick you. Maybe you can take advantage of it, like in this Verizon case, up until they decide, you know, that they're just going to cut you off. I mean, we have the discussion at Scale Engine with customers all the time. It's like, well, this place says they'll give us unlimited viewers. It's like, well, then if you show up with a lot of people, they're just going to turn you off one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And mm-hmm. if you want to screw around with that until that day, sure, call us the day you get cut off and we'll set you up and we'll charge you extra to set it up in a hurry and we'll get you switched over. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to do. The next story uh, sounds like a faulty UPS took out 10% of BT's customers. Ouch. Yes. But it wasn't BT's fault. The, the power problem was actually at a data center operated by Equinix, ah. uh, which is an exchange and data center operator. Mm-hmm. They bought the British company that r- did run that data center, I think Telecity or whatever. And... Uh, yeah, apparently screwed up a UPS and took out a whole bunch of people for a couple hours. It's kind of embarrassing, though. Uh, so I thought this one was submitted to the show a few weeks ago, and I never got a chance to put it in the roundup until now. Uh, there was a flaw that allowed Mitsubishi Outlanders to have their doors open remotely by thieves. It was found by Pentest Partners, whose team noticed that the mobile app had an, had an unusual method of connecting to the vehicle, which is going to become more and more common, right? Uh, and all their connected cars have cloud servers allowed to manip- manipulate vehicle functions over the mo- over the car's mobile network. Right. And so instead of the phone connecting over Bluetooth or something to the car that you're standing beside, when you press the button, it sends a thing to the cloud, and then the, your car is connected to the cloud and receives the message. And it, uh, did we talk about the smart plug with the vulnerabilities a couple of weeks ago? It doesn't ring a bell. But maybe okay. it was when Noah was here. No, it wasn't. So, huh. Anyway. Uh, it means that somebody could pretend to be the phone app and unlock your car without having to be the phone that's associated with it. It all depends on the security of the cloud setup. And yes, car manufacturers are great at that. <laughs> yeah, that's, they've just been super uh, nailing that for years now. Uh, this next story is bit of a bummer. Oh, V Bulletin and its plugins. Ubuntu Linux forms have been hacked. Ha, 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 yes, in this one, it wasn't actually V Bulletin itself, but one of the plugins. Yeah, yeah. It was called Forum Runner yeah. or something like that. Now, Canonical says the password table wasn't taken somehow. Oh, okay. Uh, it, uh, but they had well, they got they users and email addresses and IP addresses. Yeah, they got the IP address, username, and email address of over 2 million users. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, the Unless something's different in vBulletin, the passwords are stored in the same table as the I thought so. username what it says and here, email address. They say this is from Canonical CEO. We know the attacker was not able to gain access to valid user passwords. So maybe they right. They just mean that they're hashed, or yeah. that because it's like some sort of central Ubuntu login. Maybe it's like the passwords are on a different service uh, or something. It could be that, or they, they could have had row level permissions or something, but that's unlikely. Yeah. Anyways, I guess they've rebuilt the whole form. Uh, redid the database and had people reset their passwords, so that's good. But it's again, I underscore it was a plugin that had a vulnerability that then they were able to get access to the people. It has lots of vulnerabilities, but the Ubuntu people know to be on top of those. Yeah, but the plugins are tougher, right? Yep. There you go. So it happens. Um, and uh, I guess it's this is this is about a week, two weeks ago, and uh, you probably got a notification. But if you if you use that password anywhere else, it's always safer just to 
make sure you change your passwords other places. Don't use the same password on your email, etc., etc., like we tell you all the time. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast of the TechSnap program. We'd love to have you join us live over jblive.tv, like I mentioned at the top of the show. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time. But just remember, it starts at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom! That's right. We also have jblive.fm if you want the audio-only stream. If you want to submit content to the show, techsnap.reddit.com. Don't forget the emails. Please send those in by going to the contact page or send them directly to us. And last but not least, we always love it if you, if you subscribe to our RSS feed so that way you just get the show weekly when we release them automatically. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in, into this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 